Welcome to The Jared Gold Show, where you'll learn the most groundbreaking perspectives, philosophies, and tools you can use to change your life. From the world's wealthiest people to the most prominent spiritual teachers, from the highly logical to the wildly esoteric, you can expect to receive the best curation of wisdom that exists, all explained in the depth and clarity that leaves you ready to take action. And now, here's our host, Jared Gold. Hey everyone, this is Jared. I am absolutely elated to have you here on this journey with me as I kick off this podcast. Just a quick heads up that the first two episodes I realized after I recorded that I was a little more reserved than normal. I had a different setup then. Now I have a better setup where I can be louder, more expressive, still working on finding my voice and my tone for these first few episodes, but I'm really proud of this content. So bear with me and I hope it doesn't come off as too quiet. But yeah, thank you so much for joining me, and what I'm really excited to do is start co-creating this show with you listeners from the very beginning. So if you just go to thejaredgoldshow.com, feel free to interact with me there, and I welcome any ideas or feedback or insights or topics that you want to hear about uh, in case I've curated a lot of wisdom on it, in case I've found a really awesome source of information. So thanks so much, and let's dive into the episode. I'm really excited for today's topic. It's one of my absolute favorite things to discuss and learn about. And it is how to build wealth and how money works. And I've spent so much time digging into this because, man, I've had all kinds of money challenges and uh, misconceptions. Yeah, just so much of a lack of clarity that I've really dug into this at depth. And I want to be clear that I'm not going to spend the time giving you personal finance advice. Uh, I feel like so many other places do that better. I would say the best book that I've read on it is called I Will Teach You to Be Rich by Ramit Sethi. But instead, I wanted to share some of the more remarkable books that are more hidden gems than the modern day Uh, how-to stuff. The first book that I thought was really fantastic, and it does go into the esoteric a little bit, but it is really practical as well as theoretical. And it's only like $3 on Kindle, and in fact, you can get it for free on the author's website if you want to download the PDF for free. It's called The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. For those that aren't familiar, Naval is... Man, in the tech startup kind of world, Naval is seen as like a is as like a king. Like people really <laughs> hang on to his every word, and he does really have a lot of good advice. Uh, I'm not like a super fanboy of his necessarily, but I thought this book was just excellent. So I'm going to talk through uh, just. So, I, I mean, I really recommend you get this book. And especially like if you can just download the PDF for free, but it's well worth the $3 to buy on, say, Kindle. Uh, So he starts with, well, he doesn't start with, but my first point here is code and media are permissionless leverage. They're the leverage behind the newly rich. You can create software and media that works for you while you sleep. Now, most people listen to this, myself included, are not software engineers, and we're all well aware of how much money someone can make uh, developing apps. 
even if it's a $1 app that goes viral, whatever. So like that's obvious. But I think the idea of creating media or just, and media is a broad definition here, but just creating something digital that works for you while you sleep. So it could be uh, a book or an ebook of sorts, and there's tons of tools to, to sell that really easily online yourself uh, that like take out any coding, any technical nuance. So there's that. You know, there could be like writing a newsletter uh, where, you know, maybe the newsletter is entirely free, for example, using a tool like Substack. Uh, and down the road, you could have, you know, you could you could charge for, say, like $5 a month for a select premium uh, version of the newsletter for your biggest fans. Or if it has a big enough audience, you can find advertisers or they find you that would be relevant to your audience and they can pay you thousands or many thousands of dollars a month just to be featured right in that newsletter because it's it's put right in front of their target audience and maybe it really adds a lot of value to your readers as well advertising doesn't have to be annoying or spammy or irrelevant the next point of his or his quote is the highest form of wealth is the ability to wake up every morning and say, I can do whatever I want today. Money's greatest intrinsic value, and this can't be overstated, is its ability to give you control over your time. Now, we probably hear this a lot in terms of, oh, financial freedom, and you could spend your time doing whatever you want, etc. But I think this encapsulates it really well. Specifically, the highest form of wealth is the ability to do that. So it's not how much money do you have in your bank account necessarily, which can seem really daunting to where, oh, if I have $50 million in my bank account, that means way more freedom than having $5 million in my bank account. And, tr- and you know, obviously I imagine 50, uh, having $5 million in your bank account seems a lot more doable than having $50 million. So I think just not directly equating the more money you have to the more freedom you have after a certain point. Naval spends a lot of time in this book talking about specific knowledge, which he defines as knowledge that you cannot be trained for. If society can train you, it can train someone else and replace you. And so his view on specific knowledge is, he defines it as this weird combination of unique traits from your DNA, your unique upbringing, and your response to it. It's almost baked into your personality and your identity. Then you can hone it. And I think that's a really fascinating perspective. And he talks about how most of life is a search for who and what needs you most. So it's not, in his perspective, it's not so much about I have the knowledge of XYZ, which I learned a certain place or from a certain person, but also that combined with your own unique filter of it and your own background and your own experiences and that you yourself, that everyone is this perfect amalgamation of knowledge plus personal experience and the way they, their personality allows them to distribute it or utilize it. And I feel like that is a really uh, uplifting thought because I, I feel like when we just think about, oh man, someone is a better writer than me. Okay, 
well, are they a better writer than you on a certain topic? Or is there a certain niche you can carve out where it's your pretty good writing skills plus your very unique background for this exact specific audience that can identify with your experiences or personality or upbringing? Then you've kind of carved yourself into this. There's no real competitive arena. You are uh, in a field of, uh, of one. It's just yourself. Another quote he has in the book is, figure out what you're good at and start helping other people with it. Give it away. Pay it forward. Karma works because people are consistent. On a long enough time scale, you will attract what you project. But don't measure. Your patience will run out if you count. This is very in line with what a lot of others say that I've read about our innate gifts and talents. It's not a matter of doing so much free work that you feel taken advantage of, but it's more so if you have these innate gifts and you know that they're gifts within you, it should be joyful to give it away to people that appreciate it, assuming it's not at your own detriment of of never charging for your expertise or, or your services, for example. So I think that is a really fascinating and cool way to look at it. He then says, apply specific knowledge with leverage, and eventually you will get what you deserve. So overall, I mean, there's many great highlights in this book. I think those are my favorite quotes that encapsulate his overall point. And I want to go back to what he says with his phrase, with permissionless leverage. In that, again, you can create software or media, digital things of any kind uh, that work for you while you sleep. And in another part of the book, he mentions that all of this is stored in a way where robots do the work for you in these data centers. For example, if you put out an ebook or an online course or what have you, uh, you don't have to individually sell every one of those. Once you have it out there online, you can sell infinite copies and you put in no more effort than in the original creation of whatever you produced. Anyways, I I just really recommend this book. And I think it merges both the wildly practical and the theoretical with even some of the more esoteric concepts. But now we're going to really get into the wild stuff. My next favorite book on money is called The Illusion of Money by Kyle Cease. And there's so much good stuff in here, it's, it's hard to encapsulate it. But let's dive in. Starting with the quote, begin seeing your relationship with money the way you would see your relationship with a person. Your relationship to money is just a mirror of a relationship to yourself. In fact, you don't really have a relationship to money. You only have a relationship to your thoughts about money. How you feel about money is just one expression of your habitual thoughts, beliefs, and stagnant emotions that you've been carrying around in your body and nervous system for years. So if you're feeling fear around money, what you're actually feeling is a reflection of the fear and insecurity that is living inside of you all the time. You just happen to be noticing it externally through money. Money isn't causing or creating your fear. It's just bringing it to the surface. I think that quote is really killer. 
Uh, I don't know if I can really expand on it beyond that any better than than he encapsulated there. I would tie it back to the overall belief about how life and reality works in terms of the hermetic principle of as within, so without, as above, so below, meaning everything that is reflected to us from our life, or rather everything that comes to us in life is just a reflection of our own interior or inner perspective or beliefs about ourselves or the world around us. And it's just going to keep being reflected back to us to get us to notice that belief and and hopefully shift it. Uh, Next, the next quote here that I want to share is, to appreciate literally means to increase value. The more you appreciate yourself and the world around you, the more you raise your value and your ability to receive value. Living in the field of appreciation lifts you out of the problems that so many people are obsessed with. For me, this brings up the initial thought of gratitude. We've all heard, to an exhausting degree, the trite advice of being grateful. Now, as much as I am all for being grateful and it feels nice, it's not always easy to do or it's easy to forget or we really don't feel grateful when things are not going so well for us. I feel like this quote really starts to dig into why it matters to feel grateful. So for example, when we appreciate something, like he says, we add value to it. And therefore, when we add that value externally, like, or when we internally add more value to something, that will be reflected in the external and we can receive that additional value. And the second guy that I, that I interviewed for my book, David Meltzer, he mentions that that is a critical aspect of abundance is firstly bring, being grateful because appreciation means to add value to it. So it's the same perspective there. And Dr. Joe Dispenza, one of my favorite teachers, authors of all time, he mentions that gratitude is the ultimate state of receivership. So the more that we can be grateful, the more that we can expect from the external for those things to come to us. Next quote. If you're appreciative when money comes to you, confident in your ability to create abundance, and generous with the money you have, money will probably want to start being around you more. I read in another book... I remember this this quote pretty distinctly, that money is a jealous lover. And so if you ignore money, money will just go elsewhere. I feel like a lot of people have a lot of fear around money and maybe avoid it or don't want to talk about it. Or it's this dark underlying mystery that we don't bring to light. Probably a lot of which is just because of societal norms and what is polite society. Next quote that I wanted to share is, when we're answering our calling, all the skills we could ever need will show up. Moving from a calling is letting life do the work through you. So what you're doing becomes effortless and the results show up naturally. Realize that money is completely the side effect and byproduct of finding the real thing that you are looking for. What you're looking for is you. 
I love this perspective because it's kind of the same piece of advice I've heard previously that all corresponds to this along the lines of if you do what you love or if you follow what you're passionate about, money will come. It's not just necessarily solely what you're passionate about, but also that aligns with your skill set or where you want to learn or perhaps your experience or your background. So it's the intersection of passion and what the world needs and your natural skills, etc. So I definitely like that. And then the final quote that I wanted to share from this book uh, goes like this. Ask yourself, how many times have you not been able to receive what life is trying to give you because you're caught up in a story of lack? Can you think of a time where life was trying to give you peace, but you chose to argue with a loved one? Or can you remember a time where your creativity could have been flowing through you, but you were busy stressing about the guy who cut you off earlier? I think with this quote, Kyle's just trying to emphasize that money is just one aspect of abundance. Perhaps life is trying to give us abundance in other ways. Could even be something as simple as like a free meal or snack or, uh, you know, in the case of like a creative burst, like, is that not a form of abundance? And all that we have to do is to receive it, but we're so stuck in maybe the ideology of, oh, the world is against me or Only good things happen for other people, but not myself. I feel like for a lot of us, myself definitely included, it's really easy to get caught up in identifying as the victim and it is me versus the world. Clearly, life is not in my favor. But, you know, obviously after lots of reflection and things like that, that is just not the truth. (laughs) Uh, But again, if we believe that, it will just continue to perpetuate until we finally stop buying into that lie or that illusion. So definitely recommend that book. The next book has some really great points as well. It's The Law of Divine Compensation, written by Marianne Williamson. First quote here I want to share is, the path toward or away from financial recovery, and and the note I'll add in there is like, let's say after you take a loss or something, lay in how I think about what had happened as proof of utter failure and doom, or as an opportunity to forgive myself and attract a miracle. What I needed more than anything right then was faith, faith that I could go forward and deeply recoup my losses. For context, Marianne talked about how she lost $10,000 at a time where the money was very significant to her, and that it was an opportunity to find a larger perspective. I think it's really summed up well in a great quote in another book that I really love uh, called The Game of Life and How to Play It. One of many great quotes in that book is, there is no loss in divine mind. That's been one of my favorite mantras to use. I feel like over the past year, for one reason or another, there's been multiple times where I've incurred, I would say... You could call them losses, not from investments, just like purchases I thought I wanted and then they didn't work out 
for me. Maybe they were, like some of them were definitely made out of haste or just this seems like a good idea or FOMO, whatever. Multiple, you know, it could be $100 or $200 or $300 or $400. It's all in that $100 to $400 range multiple times throughout the year. And that's definitely, to me, an amount of money that stings or is annoying. But this mantra of, again, there is no loss in divine mind is really has been really helpful to me because I'm just like, wait a second, I could totally earn this amount of money back in an unforeseen way or it can totally come to me. I didn't actually lose it. It will come back and thus I can let go of the annoyance or frustration because totally amounts in the $100 to $400 range, like there's a million good things to spend that money on. That's not an insignificant amount. So uh, I really love that quote and that approach to losing money or some kind of financial setback. And that's definitely helped me forgive myself because truthfully, I definitely had some pretty big financial losses uh, in the stock market during COVID and all of the insanity, especially peak COVID when the market was really crashing. And I made decisions out of fear as opposed to, hey, let's like slow down. Let's evaluate. Again, like tools like Robinhood are not helpful because it's so easy to make quick financial decisions when, again, I, I do fall into the camp of someone like Ramit Sethi with practical advice in terms of make a decision over the long term and like stick with it over the long term. Don't try to make hasty decisions or time the market or be- beat the market or whatever. So that's been a great way to forgive myself there. The next quote from her is, if you feel ashamed about celebrating money, don't expect money to celebrate you. And it's the same concept that I shared earlier in this podcast uh, where you treat money and your relationship with it the same way you treat the relationship with a person. You give it love, you give it admiration, you don't ignore it, you don't uh, you don't let yourself not appreciate it, you make sure to shower it with appreciation. So I think it's really fascinating how, uh, you know, again, this is an abstract concept where it's like, well, money is not a living thing. I will get into that uh a little bit later in this episode. But I just think that adds so much tangibility in terms of, well, we know how ideally we want to be treated and in a perfect world how people want to be treated. So what if we treat money like that? Next quote, think of your work life, therefore, not as separate from your spiritual life, but as central to your spiritual life. Whatever your business, it is your ministry. I definitely feel that it is not correct to try to segment work and personal life and health and everything else. It is all an interconnected system that encapsulates our life and our being, and we want to all bring it into integrity. I've heard countless people say this, including Rob Deerdeck, who I interviewed for the book, where it's we all have these different interconnected or seemingly separate aspects of our life, but they are all interconnected that feed into really our energetic being and existence. So if you are having challenges at work, there's no way to fully silo that into just work. 
It is the whole integrity of your being in your life. And conversely, when you improve one aspect of your life, such as your work life, that will ultimately trickle into improving your personal life, for example. So it does work both ways. Lastly, Marianne Williamson in this book says something similar to Naval Ravikant in his book. And she says, on the spiritual plane, you have no competitors. And that is definitely a mindset that I have really adopted or or done my best to integrate. I feel like more and more as every day goes on, a little by little, I view less people as competitors. And that really gives me a lot of freedom. Whereas previously, if you're thinking about, oh, I'm competing against this person, I'm competing against this person or this company, it just feels like you're waging war and it's some kind of like whack-a-mole situation or it feels very zero-sum game, which I'll get into a little bit later in uh, this episode in terms of how I view money, but I just love that she says it. And just to tie it back to what Naval said, it's like, your own unique experiences, your own unique skills and perceptions and gifts and DNA and wiring, you're really a one-of-one. Every single person is really a one-of-one, so how can you just play your own game and run your own race? There are too many highlights in the following three old-school books I'm going to recommend, but they're all just so fantastic that I recommend you read them, and they're all on Kindle for like a dollar or two each. So it's a no-brainer to buy them. Those three books are Think and Grow Rich, written by Napoleon Hill, The Science of Getting Rich, written by Wallace D. Waddles, and The Game of Life and How to Play It by Florence Scovel Shin. Now, all these books were written in like the 1950s and before. I think The Game of Life and How to Play It was written in like the 50s. The Science of Getting Rich was written in like the 20s, and Think and Grow Rich was written right after the Great Depression, I think in the late 20s. But these are like super freaking timeless books. Like that really, they're they're worth rereading. I reread them multiple times and there's very few books I reread. And each time you read them, you pick up on new things that you missed or previous knowledge maybe that you highlighted really resonates with you in a deeper and more profound way. So these are like timeless books that, encapsulate serious wisdom on the ideas of money and wealth, but also at a spiritual level. And I love merging the two. And I think it makes perfect sense to merge the two, especially for those seeking some kind of deeper meaning or explanation, seeing that people getting rich is not by happenstance, nor is it necessarily only a function of just grinding and working hard and hustling 12 hours a day, etc. We've now reached the part of this episode where I cover my perspectives on money. And this is in no order, but to start, I believe that money is neutral energy. It's neither good nor bad. And in fact, if you detest it, you will repel it. Uh, the same way Marian Williamson talks about Uh, you know, celebrating money like a person. And Kyle Cease in The Illusion of Money talks about treating money like a person or thinking of money as a person. So if you detest a person, they're probably going to run away from you or be elusive. And I love this idea of money being a neutral energy 
and every single wealthy person that I have researched and have listened to, like really successful and wealthy, uh, and holistically successful and seemingly happy, they all agree that money is a neutral energy. With that being said, money is an amplifier of who someone already is. So if you're already a jerk, money is going to really make you more effective at being a jerk. But if you consider yourself a good person, money is just going to make it so much easier for you to express yourself as a good person and support others. And just even a useful thought exercise is hypothetically, if you could snap your fingers and you had, let's say you don't consider yourself having a lot of money and now you have the $10 million or whatever number you think is a lot of money, how much good could you do with that? Just as like a thought exercise, I think the common narrative that we're seeing in society is really a fear-based scarcity mindset. And that's just representative of the, the masses. And it's definitely not helped with different media narratives because ultimately I think the usual belief is, oh my God, rich people are taking up all the money. There's only so much money to go around. Uh, And like, look at all these rich people. We got to keep them in check doing all these sketchy things with money. I have no doubt that there's tons of sketchy things occurring with money and wealthy people and all that. But also there's an equal amount of really amazing things that maybe are mundane or not newsworthy or worthy of the news that gets the most headlines but that's occurring. So yeah, like I really think money is neutral energy and is neutral in terms of, or actually I would say it's a net positive because if we didn't have money and we couldn't agree on a form of exchange, it would be really hard to barter with each other or it would just resort to war. So money is the only way, or rather the best way, where different parties can transact in the most efficient way possible. But with, you know, moving on to the next point that I believe is it's really all about an abundance mindset versus scarcity mindset. And I'm sure many people have heard that phrase in their own reading and research and whatever. But just to distinguish the two, abundance is essentially, hey, there's more than enough for everyone. Me becoming successful or making money or my business succeeding does not take away from others becoming successful, making money, etc. Whereas a scarcity mindset, well, and, and one additional point on abundance mindset is that is really an infinite game where there's not a clear loser if someone wins. Everyone can win in their own respective game. Whereas a scarcity mindset, one could think of it as like a sports game, which is so tangible. Hey, there's a clear winner and, a, and there's a clear loser, and that's the only way life is played. Therefore, if someone becomes richer, someone has to become poorer, which is a delusion, in my opinion. And it's also really unattractive. So for example, a lot of people might not think that they're worthy of success, because they don't want someone else to lose. Hey, you know what, I'm just going to take enough, this seems reasonable, that way everyone else can get theirs. And I just think that that is a huge illusion that we operate on. And that's an illusion that most people buy into. 
and it's reflected in all these different narratives that we're constantly hearing. It's this underlying scarcity. It's this underlying, hey, there's rich versus poor. I just don't think that's true. And I also feel that anyone can have a scarcity mindset and that a scarcity mindset really attracts far more wrongdoings from petty theft to super rich people having elaborate Ponzi schemes where it's like, you already had more money than you could ever spend. Why would you try to rob people or have some elaborate scheme? So I do believe that because of that, scarcity is way worse than believing one has enough, believing abundance. It's the fear of not having enough money that causes way more harm than the love of money. Because if you love money, but you also believe you have more than enough and you always will, are you really likely to commit wrongdoing or fraud to others? So that's how I think about that. Another thing to think about is a lot of times on this same token, it's hard for us to receive money or abundance or love or whatever. Receiving is a challenge. Let's say even just someone wants to buy us dinner and we know that they can definitely afford to buy us dinner and they want to give it to us. Can we allow ourselves to receive it? And abundance or rather the feeling of abundance can definitely come from small gestures such as allowing someone who wants to buy us dinner to buy us dinner or someone who wants to give us a small birthday gift. It can often be really hard to receive, but perhaps if we have the mindset of, hey, we're allowing this person to give, they have more than enough, can I also give myself permission to receive this? And wow, maybe there is more than enough for me and everyone and This person giving this gift doesn't mean that they sacrificed a ton of their own wealth or opportunity to give this gift to me. One fascinating additional aspect of all this, and I talked about it in my previous podcast uh, with that thermostat that both Gay Hendricks talks about with his upper limit problem as well as Ed Milet. It's really the same topic where it's money, just like with everything else, we have a thermostat with it. We have a set point that we're used to associated with our identity. Some people's money thermostat may be set at, hey, I always just have enough to get by. And therefore, that's just what you're going to receive and expect in life. And it's really hard to imagine ourselves with a different identity of having a different money set point. And again, if anything happens outside of that money set point, then then we're going to attract circumstances to us that bring it back or, or bring us back to that set point for better or for worse. So if we have the set point of always having a lot of money and we go bankrupt, we're going to find a way to return back to that set point of having a lot of money. Or if we barely just have enough to make ends meet, and then all of a sudden we fall into a lot of money, we're going to find a way, if we're not careful and aware of this possibility, we're going to find a way to return to that low set point. It perfectly explains why so many lottery winners go broke so quickly. They didn't have that much money to begin with, usually. And they, they came into all this money, 
but without even realizing it, their subconscious kicked in and found a way to return them to that low money set point that they're used to. We're always going to find a way, if we're not careful, if we're not aware, we're going to find a way to return to that which we're most familiar. And again, that's another common Ed Milet uh, saying. So yeah, I just think that's fascinating and another perspective I really believe. And lastly, off the top of my head, I really do believe that our beliefs on money are hereditary. We learn them from our family members, for better or for worse, and we learn them from our uh, teachers, our religious leaders, whatever. So if we are surrounded in our natural environment by people that are maybe more middle class, that's probably what we're just going to believe we're deserving of. Or if we grow up in a poor neighborhood, that's what we believe we're worthy of or deserving of, or that will be our destiny. Even though that's not true, that is something we convince ourselves of. The same way where when people grow up in wealthy environments, irrespective of all the advantages they have, they have this money set point and experience of life that, wow, I'm worthy of these nicer things and these bigger opportunities. And uh, that can make all the difference. Just experiencing some sample of abundance or having money can unlock it as a possibility within yourself of, oh, wow, maybe I can actually achieve this or have these things. One new way of operating that has been impactful for me has been evaluating the underlying energy or the energetic blueprint when it comes to taking action with money or wealth in some capacity. I remember that when I've made some of my big financial missteps, whether it's uh, a quick impulse buy or selling a bunch of stocks in Robinhood when uh, that peak COVID crash happened, etc., that underlying energy is ultimately or was ultimately out of fear. It was fear-based. It was rash. Another interpretation of fear can be FOMO investing, fear of missing out. Uh, oh, the window of time is closing. You're going to buy now on, on this thing. So I've found that when I make purchases or investments of some kind from a state of abundance of, hey, I trust there's more than enough. I trust that this purchase will serve me. For example, I invested a pretty decent amount of money for me personally in buying a nice couch for my living room. And it was really scary at the time. It was definitely expansive, but I freaking love this couch. I'm sitting on it right now recording it. I'm recording this episode. So because I knew that I made that financial decision and I took a lot of time doing it, but I made the decision in abundance knowing that this was a worthwhile and meaningful investment that I took my time on. And it was a very different energy than that fearful state of when I'm quickly buying something because I'm afraid I'm going to miss out or I sell a stock because I'm worried it's going to plummet even more, things like that. So just evaluating the energetic blueprint of a financial decision or decision that is financially related uh, is 
has been really helpful for me. It's just like evaluating the energy of any other kind of action or decision you make in any area of your life is what's the energy that I made this from? Was this in fear or was this in love? And you can substitute love for whatever you want, but it's basically, is this a vote in trusting that something not so good might happen or a vote that trusting that something good will happen? It's it's just been really interesting how attaching that to also money where I previously had a lot of fear, but is instead like, hey, I'm going to not attach fear-based energy to this. I know, for example, I need to purchase these different things or these different things I want to buy are investments towards the future I want. Just everything I've heard, everything I've read from truly wealthy, all-around successful people is that abundance is our birthright. We didn't come alive on this earth. We didn't come to this earth to experience scarcity or poverty. We are all, if we allow ourselves to be, we are all destined for abundance, whatever that authentically means for us. Some people want to have a ton of money and a huge house and all these nice cars. That's cool. Other people feel abundant when it's, hey, I get to have nice food and nice drinks and a vacation house a few times a year and uh, time freedom. So we all also have a, a different definition of abundance. Money is just one aspect of abundance, but what if it's, hey, I feel abundant in my health, like I feel super healthy, I feel abundant in my time, I feel abundant in the amount of love I have to give and receive with the people around me. So again, it's abundance, I would say, is defined not just in terms of money, but there is more than enough for everyone. And money is just an external representation of those internal beliefs of abundance. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. Uh, I look forward to your feedback and your thoughts and putting together the show notes for this. So yeah, thanks so much for tuning in and looking forward to having you join next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Jared Gold Show. Visit thejaredgoldshow.com to browse all episodes and show notes, as well as to submit feedback or ideas. We'd love to hear from you. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends or take 30 seconds to leave us a review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash G-O-L-D. Every review is a huge help to us and much appreciated. See you next time.